0: All right. Does anybody have any comments or questions or thoughts about any of this, before we start in? Yes, Cyrus? Turiya? It's um, the, fourth, the third stage, Robert? fourth. It's the fourth stage. It's the high, it's like, there's there's dreaming, there's waking, there's super-consciousness, and then Turiya is a very high state of, of super-consciousness. And it's a very nice word. It just means, as you progress, you go into these higher and higher states of awareness. There's a Swami at a Lake Shrine who was called Turiananda. The bliss of of the state of consciousness beyond this world, the goal of all our lives, a nice place to be. Okay, any other questions? Right. It's a comma after it in the poem. It states of deep Teiya, comma sleep. Sometimes people read it as Taria sleep, and then you can't figure out what in the world you're talking about. All right, we have this wonderful chapter about um, the sleepless saint that we're dealing with today. Um, we have the same theme of Yogananda's um, always trying to run away from the life he's living. I, I don't know what the higher purpose of it is, but the practical purpose for us is that it shows that everybody gets restless and makes mistakes. And also that he should be seized with such a powerful delusion as to have the desire to leave his master. It's um, uh, It's a very good example to us that life is not simple. Uh, As I've often talked about, the theme of this book all the way through is that the masters are really there to set us an example of what spiritual life is really like. And it's very important for us to take it as a real, real example. So here Yogananda, after all a lifetime of striving, meets his guru by miraculous means, manages to come to his ashram. And then early on, and he sort of says, my one excuse is that I hadn't been with him very long, just gets this same sort of recurring delusion in his mind that really what he ought to do is something other than what he's doing. And I've uh, noticed in all of us that we tend to have recurring delusions. It's just sort of some persistent thought that if only a certain condition were fulfilled, then things would be better. And we'll, we'll come back to it again and again and again. It's often a good thing to begin to be aware in your life of what your particular recurring delusory patterns are because then when they come back you'll just recognize them as your old friend or your old enemy instead of thinking that there's some new idea that's whose inspiration suddenly needs to be followed Um, and Yogananda sets us a wonderful master sets us a wonderful example here in this running away from his own master to go again to the Himalayas I I don't know you know to what extent this is just a Leela a divine play or what To what level Yogananda himself was just rebelling against the task that was laid before him. Because not only did he have to give his life to uplifting, deluded humanity, he was going to have to leave his India and go to this heathen country of the West and do the whole thing. So it seems like Master wasn't going to give in until he'd given it a final try to see if he could get his Master's uh, blessing on it. but uh, I loved what uh, Master, uh, Master says about Sri Yukteswar was silent on the point and uh, Master conveniently took that silence for approval. <laughs> and again, you sort of feel uh, Yogananda playing with us and playing with the states of mind that all of us are likely to have all the times through the years that I've known Swami Kriyananda. He often teases a lot and he'll often tease about something that in other circumstances you might take seriously so that you'll sort of practice making light of it so when it rears its head as a serious delusion you won't be quite so inclined. Um, Swamiji often comments when people say pray to God by saying well if you don't want me to do this then you better show me um, instead of asking Lord what do you want me to do. It's not the kind of prayer that's as inclined to get an answer because then if God is silent that's a very convenient response. It's sort of like I'm going to do what I want, and you can stop me if you want to. That's not uh, when you present that kind of challenge, even just in a human way. It's not necessarily so that you're going to prevent them from doing it. It's just more like, well, if you're set set on it, then just go ahead. It's it's not the attitude of receptivity. So, masters describing for us that even with his own guru, he had to learn the right attitude of receptivity, and and with these masters, of course, we don't have the experience on a day-to-day basis like. Uh, Yogananda did it here, but we imagine that everything is communicated in such explicit intellectual terms. And part of what we have to appreciate is that uh, spiritual teaching doesn't come that way. It comes very intuitively and it comes very sensitively. And even now, it's not as if, like, you know, Lord, tell me if you don't want me to do this. It has to be much more holding ourselves in a, a state of receptivity. And even silence doesn't necessarily mean that God is for it. We have to constantly be listening and be very receptive in, in the deepest part of ourselves. And of course, Master was, but he also shows us that he had to acquire that by making his own mistakes. So you also have the picture of a very uh, courageous devotee who's not afraid to go out and try it. And that also is a very important example even though he made a mistake he was also not too proud to come back and I mentioned earlier in this class series that this interlude was actually a whole year which is very startling when you think about it and I don't know at which phase of it he met Ram Gopal Musumdar and whether he went off to the Himalayas first or, and then came back and saw him or whether it was really at the beginning and you know what Master did I never heard Swamiji say what Master did during all those years in the all those months in the Himalayas Certainly he was capable of, um, am I echoing in a strange way? It certainly sounds to me like I am. Okay, that, uh, do I need to stand somewhere else? Pardon me? How about here? Is this better? Okay, do you mind? <laughs> okay, because it makes, sounds weird to me too. Someday soon we're going to have all this shifted. I don't know if it'll just create a new set of problems, but at least we won't have the same old ones. <laughs> When we get the light fixtures, we're going to get the um, machine that goes up to the ceiling again. And then we'll shift these ugly black speakers for smaller ones. So, it'll all be fun. The light fixtures should come soon. The light fixtures don't even look so awful in here now that everything else looks nice, but, uh, but the ones that we have are less medieval and more appropriate <laughs> to the situation. <laughs> you know, More elegant looking and less medieval. And then the black speakers go. anyway. Um, Yogananda on his way went to the shrine at Tarakeshwar it's one of the few places whenever we would go to India for the first year Swami Kriyananda would always ask if we went to Tarakeshwar and so one year we finally did go these shrines you, you know it's so um, we're so inculcated in the west to equate holiness with materiality and and just we, we think of everything being just like super established and it's always like I remember when we went to Thailand on our first trip to India we stopped in Bangkok we were on Thai airways and they had us we actually spent two nights in Bangkok on the way to India and we went sightseeing and we went to see the famous golden Buddha I mean you know an extraordinary gold uh, gold covered Buddha it's really quite something it's just off a little street in this little pavilion you know in the uh, Assisi you go and, and St. Francis's little tiny portuncula, the little chapel that he rebuilt, sits inside a humongous, huge basilica that was built all around it. So you walk, you know, for a mile across the polished marble to the little tiny little hut which is in the middle and then come out and you're just in this vast thing. I mean, that's sort of how we preserve things. So you think of a shrine as ancient as tarkeshwar and you just, that's all the images you have. And it's always shocking in India that it's always just about spirit, that they don't honor spirit by creating a huge physical thing around it. In fact, they understand that that's not the same thing. It's antithetical. So we went to Tarakeshwar, and uh, it's a little um, sort of a pavilion, mostly outdoor, right on the river. Um, the floor was totally wet and a mess because people would bathe in the river and uh, you know take, take a holy dip, they'd come up the stairs, they would be right in the uh, area I think the area in front of the shrine is really about as big as this and they come right up the river like and up the stairs here dripping wet and everybody goes in the water in their clothes I mean that's sort of how you do it people don't bother don't change into bathing suits it's a holy dip so the women go in in their saris and the men in their clothes and you just come out wet and then you come and walk across and go see the deity there so the floor is just covered with water I mean it was just a mess And someone said, when when everything is really messy in India, you always want to know what it's messy with. (laughs) It took us a while to appreciate it was just river water. We actually also accidentally went on a holiday, which we didn't intend to do and we would never do again, and it was shoulder-to-shoulder, and I mean like shoulder-to-shoulder, I don't mean like you're standing close, I mean you're (laughs) shoulder-to-shoulder, just totally crowded in. And uh, then all the devotees would come and then there was a, a little gateway which they didn't let the non-Hindus go through. And the non-Hindus could go through and then there was a room um, you know about a quarter the size of this and you'd walk around and right in the center was, and you could, we could look in and see it, we just couldn't go all the way in because we would pollute it. Um, There was just a big rock. Just exactly what Yogananda talks about, a big black stone. And there was a whole miraculous story about where the stone had been found and I can't remember all the details of it now that everyone had recognized. And they treated that stone as if it were a living thing. They would feed it, they would bathe it, they would change its clothes, they would give it an afternoon rest. There was a whole industry of the pujaris there who dealt with this stone. And people would just go in and and, uh, pronom to it. And we would sort of stand at the gate and look at them doing it. Um, And it was, uh, and then across from it was a bigger pavilion where people would go as Yogananda describes uh, for healings because it was a healing shrine and in that pavilion which was maybe three times the size of this stage it was just open-sided with the top there were just lots of people sitting and lying around either because they were sick or because like he describes his aunt uh, you know did a seven day complete fast just sort of went into that pavilion and was just there to pray for... uh, Whatever, whatever he, you know, whatever whatever you might need. So you sort of there was this very. Uh, the word I want to use is you felt a lot of an aura around all the people who were in that pavilion because all of them were concentrated on something. You felt like you didn't want to intrude in the energy that was there. And here is this scene of people just all crowded up against each other and all wet and. Um, It was a bit disconcerting to most of the Americans, and so when the opportunity came for most of them to go home, everybody, almost everybody did. But as it happened, their departure coincided exactly with the departure of almost all the rest of the pilgrims. And so the few of us, Rick, were you on that trip? So the few of us who were there um, stayed. And as soon as it sort of like it calmed down a little bit, this extraordinary feeling of divine power just came over us. So it was just it was just a remarkable moment, especially all the more so because it was just nothing, absolutely nothing, that the Western mind could grab a hold of to make you say that this is a powerful place. Even so, I mean, they're so tamasic in so many ways, this big overweight priest comes to the edge of the, the inner sanctuary and he has a whole basket full of all the offerings that the pilgrims have been making. You know, like by now, it's kind of half-rotting fruit and dead flowers. He just dumps it out, right sort of at my feet, virtually on my feet, right in front of me, and then goes back into the shrine. And in a few minutes, a bunch of goats come just to eat it all right there. (laughs) Like this is all at Tarakeshwar, this holiest of holy shrines, right? I mean, this, to me, is going a little far. Master himself talked about the cleanliness of the Westerners is something that Indians can learn from. But having, I'm, I'm sort of really telling you what it was really like, because it, it made the contrast with the actual experience of it all the more profound. That, that there could be so much spiritual power in something that had no, no form that we're used to at all. And even the deity itself was just a rock. So you can see in in the story of Yogananda when he goes there and and going to that place which has been revered for um, who knows centuries at least if not thousands of years I don't know how old the shrine is you know everybody just understands and also how Yogananda describes how the Indian consciousness is able to cognize that this spherical stone is a divine symbol whereas for, for the westerners it's just a rock. You just don't know how to get your mind around the fact that it's a divinely inspired stone. In uh, southern India, where, where Sri Ramana Maharshi lived on, uh, in an ashram there that uh, we also went to, not with the pilgrimage, but we went as a smaller group in the hope of being able to take the pilgrimage there, but the situation didn't work. He, his ashram is on a mountain called Ar- Ar- Arunachala, And the mountain itself is considered to be an incarnation of Shiva. And so all over you see these temples, and in the temples you see this little model of the mountain. And again, they just treat the mountain as if it were an incarnation. Now, I don't really know sort of exactly how to put all this into real perspective. All I can say is the feeling at Tarakeshwar was extraordinary. The feeling on that mountain was extraordinary. Ramana Maharshi is a great saint and he lived there for many years, but he went there because it was holy. It wasn't he who made it holy, it was already holy. So you have this whole Indian perspective on spirituality that just takes our little American system and just sort of shakes it on its head like a salt shaker and just pours it out. Now, Yogananda didn't really come to teach Hinduism or to teach the deities or anything like that, but he includes in this book this very interesting story of how he himself went and thought, I'm not going to bother. Now, he wasn't, he wasn't discarding the stone because it was merely a stone. He was discarding it because God is impersonal. There is no symbol. This is sort of the... Um, we're not able to tune in and appreciate as much, most of us, because we don't, we're not thinking about it. But there, there's a long-standing sort of debate among pundits and... Uh, sages in the Indian tradition of whether God is, has form or whether God does not have form. Yogananda and Ramakrishna and others solved it quite simply by saying both. You know, he has form for a while, then the form breaks and he's free. So Yogananda is also speaking to that question and describing his own sort of I'm renouncing everything, I've renounced even my guru. And so he goes to this tradi- place of traditional worship where undoubtedly people were doing pretty much exactly the same things that we saw them doing. I don't think India was quite so overcrowded then, but nonetheless it was probably pretty crowded. They were probably doing exactly the same things, just bathing in the river and prostrating themselves and then making offerings and going into the stone and so on, and probably in just the same mood, because that's how it's always been done. And he just didn't want to have any part of it, you know, I'm apart from these things. But strangely, and, it, and it, he just writes about it as a fact, his, his pride, he doesn't write about it as if the stone itself punished him, which is sort of better, a better way to think about it, but his lack of receptivity and his pride, just this little bit of holding himself superior to um, these devotional forms. I was thinking when reading this about the chapter of Master Mahashaya. And how Master said that Master Mahasaya was so humble that he just accepted everything and everyone and and saw the divinity everywhere. And Yogananda, in the name of his renunciation, there was actually this, presumably this slight element of pride and ego in it, that he was now above this. And so as a result, he set in motion a dissonance. And that dissonance, sort of the, what do they call it in the Star Wars movie, a, a, a break in the force? You know, a disturbance in the force, right? He set in motion a dissonance. And he was just slightly out of tune. And so as a result, um, the peasants, you know, feeling that disturbance in the force, so to speak, created by Yogananda's vibration, um, gave him wrong instructions and he had to go through this whole cycle. There's this, uh, it's really, what he really received is what we sort of, in the vernacular, call instant karma where um, most of the time, when we do things that are contrary to the divine reality, it takes time before the consequences of that catch up with us. Yogananda described it because of, and this is perhaps in a chapter we're reading, he said, because of the thwarting cross-currents of ego, our karma does not always come right back to us. Now think about it like this. Here's an interesting example, which many of you know probably, Yogananda said that Hitler is actually reincarnated as Prince Charles at this point. If you didn't know that, you can sort of adjust to it for a few minutes and I'll drink tea. (laughs) Yeah, that's what he says. Mm -hmm. Prince Charles, the ones you're talking about, the one who was married to Diana. It works. (laughs) Anyway, but that's what Yogananda says. Now, it seems really peculiar, don't you think? Because Hitler was not a good person, and you would think that he would be born as a germ or something somewhere, you know, as an amoeba at the very least. But uh, uh, it, what, what, what you have is that even though, well, there are several reasons for this that are important, but even though Hitler's energy was negative, it was also very powerful. And say say for example, let's just think of a more simple example. Let's say you're a person who's a financial schemer and you take advantage of people and you give money here and you put money there and so on, you might make it through all the way to the end of your life. Because you can just keep putting out enough energy that you get another scheme going and it just never quite catches up with you, does it? Where if you're just kind of a, a doofus about these things and you just take money from one place and then just sit there and they come and they find it with you you're holding it in your fists <laughs> Right, you're, you're kind of sunk. But if you're running a whole lot of scams like this, even though you're setting a lot of energy in motion, you're also setting up a cross-current of creativity and cleverness and, and all this business, so the karma doesn't quite catch up with you, and you might even go many lifetimes before the, the, there's enough accumulated that it turns the tide for you. That's the thwarting cross-currents of ego that one something starts coming to you that you see is going to be bad and you put out all this energy to keep it from coming to you. Oh, the consequences of my nefarious activity are going to cause me to become impoverished, but instead I'm going to run another scheme. I'm going to just keep pushing out, and so that energy won't quite hit me. Or I'm going to defend myself, I'm going to justify myself, whatever it might be. So, in the Hitler-Charles scheme, which I didn't really mean to spring on you because it's such a thing in itself... You know, there's just, there was just a lot of magnetic energy, a lot of force going on, a lot of determination. He hadn't given up when he died, even though he committed suicide. In fact, what uh, he gets to preside... You see how, in many ways, how much more subtle it is. Because Prince Charles is there, of course, you know, Hitler tried so hard to conquer England and completely failed. So Charles gets to have the, you know, Hitler's desire to be the ruler of England, Charles gets to have it, but not really. He's just, you know, really close to power and essentially has none. And more than that, England, he's watching England fall apart, so he finally gets to be in charge of it, but it's not that much to be in charge of anymore, right? And he never really gets to do anything except just kind of hang out. Far more um, exquisitely torturing, you know, to the soul than it would be uh, to, to not even be close to it. Do you understand? But it's also the thwarting cross currents of his own determination and energy keeps him just a little bit ahead of of what uh, would come come to him later. Does that make sense? It's a hard one, I admit it. Also, the other side of it is that Yogananda said Hitler was not really personally responsible for what happened. He, in fact, when Yogananda was coming back from India in 1935, he tried to see Hitler. He tried to meet with him because as he he said that the direction of Hitler's energy was not yet determined whether it was going to be for evil or for good. He was just powerful and he was very in tune psychically and uh, expanded in his awareness and it wasn't clear which side he was going to play. And Yogananda tried to see him but was not successful. I don't know any more details than that. But but Master said that uh, Hitler was not uh, personally responsible for all that happened. He was an instrument of the karma of many people. And, he, and uh, Master makes a contrast. He said that, by contrast, Stalin, he said, uh, was personally responsible. And he said Stalin was much worse. In the West, we don't know about him as much because he was supposed to be our ally. He said Stalin was, he said it's precisely, Hitler was a Boy Scout compared to Stalin. And that Stalin would have, did he say, 100,000 lifetimes? of intense suffering for what he created. But Hitler just played it out for the destiny of many. He didn't cause it as much. It's fascinating how it all works, isn't it? I mean, I, don't, I can't answer it more than that. It just makes your mind sort of boggle. It also, just knowing that little fact about Prince Charles, also helps you not to get sucked into the fact that we don't really know anything about these people. The mere fact that you can read about them in the Sunday Times doesn't really tell you anything about what people are like. And we don't want to sort of act as if we know them or have opinions when we really don't have any knowledge of them. We don't know who they are inside. So um, what happened with Yogananda, by contrast, that was a long uh, diversion, is the simple fact that for him there are no, th- no thwarting cross-currents. You know, it's, it's not as if he's running a whole determined effort to, to maintain his delusions. And it's a very important because we have lots of delusions, And whether we, because having your karma come right back to you is enormous good karma. Because if you make the mistake and it comes back to you immediately, then there's no long interlude in which you can forget the cause. And there's no long interlude in which you can sort of build up all this energy with your wrong thoughts. You just make the error and it comes right back to you. So so Master tells the story, he was disrespectful to the divine. He broke divine law. And then divine law tortured him, <laughs> and then he became informed, and so he went back to compensate, so it wouldn't happen again. So often in our lives, when things start coming to us that are the direct results of our own actions, the more we cannot put up thwarting cross currents of ego, the more more quickly and completely we can learn the karmic lessons and get free of it. It's a very a wonderful phrase to keep in front of you, and just watch when. Someone justifiably accuses you of something you've actually done. <laughs> see if your first impulse is to see if you can thwart the karma. Or if your first impulse is to say, Welcome. I'm glad you're here, better now than later. You know, it's a much better philosophy. Okay. And it's very sweet what's written here, you know, because Master really had a deep desire to meet this great saint, and it was really meant to be. So even despite everything, as it says here, Master's sincerity drew Ram Gopal to him. And then you just have this extraordinary meeting, again, remember the original name of this book was the Yogi Christ of India, and each chapter was different chapters were about a different one of these great souls. So here you have this picture, again, this is just rural India, Master's been walking for hours and hours across these paddy fields, just rice fields, in the middle of nowhere, and this great saint just strolls out and meets him with this extraordinary consciousness, and then he takes him back to a little bamboo hut. And, and you know, we're, we're talking nothing. You know, we're not, just, we're not just talking about a suburb or something like that. We're talking nothing, because in the, the, the more advanced we are, the less we need of anything. I remember when I was first contemplating. The concept of the yugas, and I was thinking about how people dispute, you know, that there could have been high, very high ages, because they assume the higher the age, the more dynamic the physical evidence will be. You know, we just, because we're in such a low age, in such a material age, we figure the more advanced you are, the more stuff you're going to have, and the more great that stuff is going to be, and the more enduring that stuff is going to be. But if you think, for example, of the American Indians, who by the time the white settlers arrived by their own tradition they were a dying people at the last you know at the last degenerate end of the great periods that they themselves had known they had appeared to have been a continuous civilization from a much higher age because all of the tribes have traditions of when they really were in their flowering period and this is just the last of it and also we can see self-evidently because they were obliterated I mean, it was over. They were people whose time was over. In fact, you see all around you all these peoples whose time is over. It's the end of Kali Yuga. It's the beginning of a new era. The Aborigines, the Polynesians, the American Indians, they're just all wiped out. And on one level, you can blame, but a whole people do not get wiped out because somebody was in a bad mood. You know, it, It's because of divine forces far greater than anybody's little actions. But the American Indians, they lived with nothing. They were so in tune with the world around them that they needed nothing to buffer themselves, be, between themselves and the world around them. You see, what we're, what we're always creating is a buffer. We, we live in worlds now where we have, we have no awareness, really, of what's going on in the natural world around us. When I first moved to Ananda Village from the city of San Francisco, in June of 1971, I moved from an apartment at Fourth and Geary to a tent. I'd never even camped before in my life, and I was in a tent. It took me about one day to adjust. I felt so perfectly content there, and the tent—the tent had uh, two big uh, windows, so it was really an indoor-outdoor tent, and things were more, less populated, so it was just fine to be that open. And, but there was just such a sense of being in the world. And I, I discovered the moon. I discovered there were phases of the moon. I discovered that sometimes it was light and sometimes it was dark. I mean, you don't know that here, unless you happen to glance up and you'll see it. But you won't know that sometimes it's light and sometimes it's dark, unless you walk around in places where there is no other light to show you. And you just sort of get so that you don't need all this buffer between the world around you and what's happening now. Now that's the state of real advancement because you're just in harmony with all of creation in the stories of, in the cycle of the, of the caste as the measurement of, of individual soul evolution as to where your pain comes from and how you try to solve it in the Kshatriya level where most of us find ourselves at least a good deal of the time is the level in which we recognize it's not happening from outside, it's how we react, and the goal is to discipline ourselves to solve our suffering. But the Brahmin level, which is the highest level, there's no suffering. Because if everything happens by the will of God, what is there to resist? Right? It's just such a simple question. In order for there to be tension, there has to be two points of view. If there's only one point of view, if your consciousness is united with the infinite, where, why do you suffer? How could you suffer? What would suffer? Right? And so it is, in this uh, coming back to where we are, Yogananda finds this fantastic advanced soul who just lives in this little hut and meditates. Because that's all that God asks him to do. Now we have to appreciate also that meditation by one on that level is a great service to the world. That it's the high altar of inner communion. We, we mustn't get confused. Every week in the Festival of Light we say that Jesus asked, uh, Babaji, asked, Jesus asked Babaji to send someone to the West to, re, to, to revitalize the true teachings of Christianity because they've forgotten, Jesus says. They still have uh, on the lower altar of good works but the noble taper of inner communion burns low and is ill attended. Now it's just a very simple statement that yes, it's no harm in helping your neighbor, but the real way and the only way to really help your neighbor is to uplift his consciousness. I mean, everything is about consciousness. Every time you have a difficulty in your life, every time you suffer, every time anything goes incorrectly, if you really think about it, it's just about your consciousness. And what ends your suffering? Invariably, because your consciousness changes. Maybe your consciousness changes because circumstances change and that makes, allows you to change your consciousness. But what really makes the difference is that the space inside your head vibrates differently, correct? And as long as the space inside your head is vibrating a certain way, you have a certain experience. As soon as it shifts, you're different. Now, if we really want to help one another... What would really help one another the best is to help each other lift that space inside your head. I mean, we may be hungry again tomorrow, and we may be oppressed by tyrants, any number of things could happen, but if the space inside our heads is, is what we need it to be, and, and what influences that? Well, thoughts are universal. There are these great forces moving across this plane of consciousness that we tune into, and those forces are projected by great saints, and especially by great saints of a particular line of teaching. That's what Yogananda is always saying to us, the masters of this line are projecting the vibration of this path. And great saints related to this line, like Swami Kriyananda, for example, or or others, Rajasi when he was alive, or Gyanamata, or even from the other side, they're doing it. So when Ram Gopal meditates profoundly, and because he's meditating true. Now, if you're meditating in a false sense, you're just uh, self-aggrandizement, you're just building the ego. But a true meditator meditates as a service, meditates in surrender, in just the same way that you know we would serve in an external way for hours and hours. True meditators meditate as a service to the world. So Ramgopal never has to go anywhere. He just sits in that little hut, meditating hours and hours a day, and through him runs this great current which goes across like a wave over the planet, and, and people who have the capacity to be uplifted suddenly feel this sense of upliftment. You don't know why. Grace descending. Grace comes through instrument. Master would say about Kananda, the story is told of him walking on Encin- in Encinitas with one of his... Uh, Master was with one of the other disciples, and Rajasi was sitting nearby on the bluff, meditating very deeply. Master said, should be very quiet. And he made them be very, very quiet as they walked by. He said, we mustn't disturb him. He, then Master said, you have no idea the blessings that come to this work and to the world because such a one meditates so deeply. So it's, it's very important, and I'm spending a lot of time on this, Because we're so turned around in our own thinking in the West that we just really need to go very, very deeply into the fact that Ram Gopal looked like nothing unless you were sensitive and could see that he was everything. And oh, the discipline, of course, that he describes, 20 years doing this, 20 hours a day doing that. It's not the karma that we have. And it's not really the the, uh, style that's been given to us. But Master wants us to understand that that's what it's about. He doesn't want us to think that our little five minutes in the morning or fifteen minutes at night is really the sum total of what's possible, you know, that there really is this picture of freedom and complete commitment that we can at least um, play with in the corner of our mind and imagine what it must be like. And there's also just such sweetness about Ram Gopal just sort of teasing Yogananda. Well, so you've run away from your Master, huh? You know and then uh, but he gives him this glorious experience of meditating and seeing the light and uh, being uplifted in his presence and hours sitting together it's just such a such a picture of life, not at all what we think of is it very, very beautiful and then Ram Gopal blesses him and takes away from him this uh, <coughs> this physical pain he's been suffering all this time just such a um um, Master wants, wants to humanize it. And he also shows us Ram Gopal cooks for him, you know, makes curry and makes rice. You know, we're a little hungry, aren't we? Okay, we'll make a little curry, we'll make a little rice, dal and rice. And Master offers to help, but no, the saint says, the guest is God, I'll serve, I'll serve you. And so as, in, in contrast to Yogananda's somewhat egoic relationship to the stone at Tarakeshwar, we have this complete humility You know, I'll make the food with my own hands. I'll give it to you with my own hands. And earlier we had the... Or elsewhere we have the story of Babaji you know, coming when Sri Yukteswar was a little bit proud and uh, Babaji comes and washes the feet and takes care of the utensils and just shows us what a true devotee is really like. Lest we also get into the idea that the more spiritual we become the more important we become. The more people wait on us. You just... The greatest, the last shall be first. The smallest, the least, the most humble, uh, the most little is really the greatest in the eyes of the divine. It's really quite a story. Any comments or thoughts? Mm -hmm. It's a very good question. I have no answer for it. And I just sort of, I don't know why it even came out that It it was longer than that, but... Swami just says it as a fact. And Master, they discussed it because Master said that he was stubborn. That's why he stayed away so long. (laughs) But if again, if such a great soul would have to test for himself the truth of his own Master, it, it, it gives us the right to follow our own flow, you know, more... Any other comments or, or thoughts? He's such beautiful language. He's going off to the Himalayas and then he comes back and to, refers to the Himalayan presence of my master. And uh, I think I, I talked in here once before about the Himalayas and the influence they have on India and just the uplifted power of being able to go so far away from ordinary life. It's really a very important image to keep. We don't have it physically in front of us you know everywhere we look we see the same culture all around us you know we don't we don't have a place that we can see but it's it's good in within your own heart and i think one of the reasons even that master writes so much about this desire to go to the himalayas is in a very real sense we need to appreciate that it's a real desire and it's an appropriate desire it's the desire to escape from this world completely and to dwell in more rarefied heights than these but, of course, Yogananda wasn't allowed to quit the world, but the desire was always within him to, um, to be beyond it. It's, it's a very funny business being a human being. You know, it's, it's a very funny business being a human being and a devotee, because we, just, we have to live this life the way it's given to us. When you see people who refuse to really live, you know, to sort of think that to be detached by not engaging... It tends not to create an image that is really inspiring, and yet at the same time, we have to we have to act as if it matters, and never care at all. Uh, always just have have a part of us just aware that we're just visiting here, and that our true home, whether we think of it as the Himalayas or wherever we think of it, it's really that's really our reality, and everything else that goes on is just an exercise a peculiar exercise which we have to do very carefully. That's why having the example of Swami Kriyananda around is such a good one. Because you see how just intensely he works and how profoundly committed he is to doing the job that was given him to do. And yet at the same time, it's not not really anything that really matters. I remember there's a, a, a picture that some of you have seen Swami Shivananda, who is a great saint um, of this century, who lived until the 50s, I think, or the 60s, to the 60s, yeah, um, he was a very, very great soul. And his chief, one of his chief disciples was Swami Chidananda. Chidananda became the heir to the um, organization, the Divine Life Society in Rishikesh. Chidananda is a traditional Indian swami. And he's visited Ananda village once, many years ago. And he and Swami Kriyananda are kind of like peers. They're both heirs to a very um, magnificent legacy and have had to spend their lives serving it. And in 1993, I guess it was, in 95, the year that Swami went on our India pilgrimage with us, we went to Rishikesh. And as it happened, Chidananda was in residence at the ashram there. He's often traveling around the world. And so we made arrangements that Swami Kriyananda would go and visit Chidananda. And I think there was some slight thought on on behalf of his ashram that the 30 of us weren't going to be there too, but we really just quashed that shot, thought as soon as possible. And there was some slight moment where there might have been an attempt to separate us from Swami, which we just simply ignored and rushed in. So as a consequence, we all got to sit there while, Swami, while the two Swamis had their moment together, and some of you, there's a picture around of the two of them just beaming like children. And there was just this little moment of exchange. I asked Swamiji later if my interpretation was accurate and he said it was, so I'll tell it to you as if it were. Um Ananda sort of looks at Swamiji with this sort of arch smile, like he says, and how is Ananda? How are the Ananda communities like this? Swami Kriyananda says, fine. And then he turns to Chidananda, and how is the Divine Life Society? And Swami Chidananda says, fine. Like that. And then they both just sort of smile, just off like that. I, and, and it looked to me, and this is what Swamiji said, it was a, they were joking. It was like, oh no, how is your great big world mission? Oh, just fine. And yours, how is yours going? <laughs> you know, like the, That was what you could just feel as the undercurrent. You know, just... We've been given this job to do, but it has nothing to do with us, doesn't it? Isn't it adorable? <laughs> you just what you felt. It's just like, isn't this cute that all these years later we both had, because they met when they were much younger men, all these years later we just had to play out these roles and what difference does it make? And, and you could just feel, but at the same time, there was something very subtle there, which is the complete freedom was because they had both given everything to it. They wouldn't have had that freedom on that level. Otherwise it would have just been laziness. Oh yeah, it's fine, you know. But it wouldn't have been a transcendence. It would have been an unwillingness to put out the energy. But because they'd both given everything to it, they were able just to float. It It was all finished. The karma was really done instead of just waiting to be done. And so with Ram Gopal, I mean, he didn't do anything except meditate. He went to this cave for this long and this cave for this long and this cave for this long. But having just done all that, having devoted himself entirely to it, he was just floating above it all. But then you have that peculiar thing which is echoed also in the next chapter, which is, which is Master asked Ram Gopal, would you give me the vision of God? And Ram Gopal said, I was just contemplating whether or not I've pleased my beloved or not. There's just this exceeding humility that sets in which is so the opposite of people who pretend to be spiritual. You know, people who pretend to be spiritual, who are sort of acting the part and wanting you to know, is so different than the ones that really are. Swamiji tells us the story of a Swami Rama, Ramdas, not the American Ramdas, but another Ramdas, Papa Ramdas, they call him, from India. And he came to visit SRF at one point, and Swamiji had never met him, and he was the elevator opened and and uh, Swami Ramdas was there, and there, he had a couple of uh, associates with him and Swamiji saw you know a very impressive looking Swami sort of stalwart and strong, and sort of just like almost automatically at first thought that well, this must be the the guest of honor and then, as soon as, as that Swami saw that Kriyananda was relating to him, like that, well, he immediately sort of turned and directed the energy, and there was this little toothless tubby, bald sort of guy there <laughs> you know but he was really the saint because it just everything was gone that's just who he was he was all wrong his books in 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 the vision of god in quest of god the the world is god they're just incredible stories of that just complete surrender who cares right now i'll just say one more time and then i'll take a break we can't have that outward style but that should not prevent us from one second for having that inward reality, and we should be feel at all times that we could just retire to a bamboo hut, you know. When I was living as a monastic, and I thought my life—I thought we were just going to stay at Ananda village in the in the woods forever. I used to imagine having the older I got, I'd have less and less and less and less, and it was so much fun because it was just the opposite picture, you know, the normal picture of of acquisition by the time you retire, you have your retirement home, and you have, your, have this and your that, and you have all this stuff. You know, Instead, it was just like such a wonderful thought that the older I got, I would have less and less. And that's really just a, a beautiful way to think, why would we want more? The more we have of divine consciousness, we should need less and less of everything else. All right, let's take a few minutes break, and then we'll go into the next chapter. So thoughts, about anything, before we go forward? Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're, for We're for it. But can we take it? That is the question. Yes, John. Which one? I just give me. Uh-huh. Swami actually met a very advanced That's uh, S- uh, Yogi Ramya who was a disciple of Ramana Maharshi that his, his demeanor was similar to Mamgopulma Zimdara that's who you were thinking probably I had the same thoughts going in my mind Swamiji tells the story in the path of meeting Swami Ramya in India who was a, a, a yogi that, that Yogananda also met when he went to India which, who was a, uh, I think a fully realized soul Swamiji says there's a beautiful picture of uh, Paramahansa Yogananda and Yogi Ramya meeting each other and just this beautiful exchange of divine consciousness, but it's a picture that SRF just keeps in their vault. <laughs> so we don't have it. <laughs> yes, Tom? I want to say that I find Master's description of the cosmic consciousness accessible and believable. Yeah, isn't it so? And it makes me feel like I can that. Uh-huh. God, personal, yeah. real, possible. Yeah. You know, all that. The the concept of cosmic consciousness is really the defining reality of this path. Sometimes we call it self realization or samadhi, but it's what um a a, a a rabbi came to me once many years ago. I don't know if he's still in the area, but he had a, a synagogue a little bit south of here. And, you know, he sort of like had to talk to someone. A lot of clergy people uh, may be part of a a denomination, but they don't necessarily have satsang like we do. We belong to the local Palo Alto Ministers Association and we go on a regular basis, but you know David and I are out of the country so much, especially in the last couple of years since Swami's been in Italy. We were gone three months last year. We're gonna go to India again now. They all sort of look at us like, how can you leave so much? Because most of them are essentially a solitary minister, maybe with an assistant, and they just can't walk away from their churches. As and Not that we can walk away easily, but they can't walk away at all. But we can walk away fairly easily because we have such a wonderful, um, so much depth. But so many um, clergy people just don't have anybody. They go to their conventions, but that's just, it's not the same spiritual family. So this man... Um, it's a very peculiar experience. Very nice man. Um, needed to talk to someone because he was having a crisis because he went to his own Sunday school and the children asked him to tell him, tell them what it was to be a Jew. And he really didn't quite know what to say, right? When he had to really like simplify it down for children and put it down to a few words, he just didn't know what to say. There's been a joke going around on the internet about a a very uh, secular, atheistic Jew who lived in some city and uh, the best school around happened to be Trinity School. And, of course, it was Catholic in its origin, but it was pretty secular and it was the best school around, so he sent his kid to the school. And after a few months, the kid came home and said, Hey, Dad, I just figured out that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And the Jewish father got real upset. He grabbed his son by the shoulders and he said, Look, he said, God is only one, and remember, we don't believe in him. <laughs> but, but anyway, this poor rabbi was just sort of in this dilemma because he just didn't know how to describe what Judaism is. And I was raised Jewish and I've been you know, occasionally back and I couldn't describe it either. But it made me think about a lot what happened to both the Jews and the Christians from two different sides. The Christians had Jesus, of course, and Jesus is a self-realized master, and he really came to teach people kriya or something very similar to it, as how Yogananda describes it, and how to do as Saint. Paul did, you know to go breathless to die to this world. I mean Jesus was a very it was very practical and it was very oriented toward. The individual. He he was against the establishment and this whole big system that was set up, and it was all about you. You know, be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He was taking it all away from these externals and making it internal. But as time passed and out of devotion, people wanted to make Jesus more and more important, and so they kept cutting off all the connecting links between us and Jesus. They took all the lost years out of the Bible because they thought it wouldn't be a good idea if people knew that Jesus had actually gone to study with other masters, which is what he in fact did. Those who opposed it said, look, the disciples knew he did it and it didn't hurt their faith. No, no, it has to come out. And the myth just got stronger and stronger until finally you just have Jesus way up here. You have this huge church around it. And then you have us way down here and then you have this very elaborate system that you have to follow in order to attract his grace so that you know you can finally get something or another but but there's no longer a personal link between his state of consciousness and and ours and there's no longer a project a personal project which is to become like him that which i do ye shall do in greater things that's what he was saying this is your job that was not a compliment that was a job assignment, right? <laughs> but we just, we, we don't take it. He, he did it, we can't. You know, we just hang around and finally he helps us. That's why we go around helping all the homeless people, because we don't have, the main event has been lost, right? Now the Jews had the same problem, which is the Messiah came, but for some reason we didn't get it. I went to ask my poor dad, Daddy, why wasn't Jesus the Messiah? I said, I was about eight. He kind of just stared at me, you know, his eyes get kind of big, like, and he, gave, he just hemmed and hawed, basically, gave me complete nonsensical answers. It was very clear to me that he had no idea why Jesus wasn't the Messiah. He vaguely remembered what somebody had told him, but he didn't know, and I was courteous enough not to press the point. <laughs> but I've never forgotten it, because I knew that he didn't have an answer, it was just part of the system that he'd accepted. But so then the Jews went even further, and it's like, if he wasn't the Messiah, there just aren't any. You know, there's no images in Jewish temples and no pictures of saints, no praying to saints because God is only one and we don't believe in him. But there's just, many Jews do, but there's only one. It's just, they, they went really, really far with thou shalt have no uh, images. And what it really meant was thou shalt not elevate anything above the divine. But the Jews mean that there's just nothing. So once again, here we are. There's God way up there and here we are as Jews and we just, there's nothing for us to do. I and mean, so we just flail around, being Jews is what Jews mostly do, is they just flail around being Jews. When I was, I can say that, I, when I went to the, when I went to the holy, High Holy Days in my local temple where my parents live, I realized that if he hadn't been able to throw in a lot of Hebrew words, which he had to then define because nobody really knew Hebrew, and just talk about being Jews, he didn't really have anything else to say. All he just talked about was the fact that we're Jews. And it sounds so silly when I say it, but that's exactly what happened. I was so frustrated because the prayer book was really good. I wanted, at one point, I just felt like, so why don't you just give me the microphone just for ten minutes, I'll get the attention of this congregation. <laughs> but he just, it wasn't really appropriate. But the Jews and the Christians both, they're, they're all just lost out there. There's no, there's no place to go anymore because we don't have cosmic consciousness. So you don't have a project. So, but, so Yogananda came back and he restored the project. And the project is personal self-transformation. And he he restored the concept that samadhi is our ultimate destiny. And even though, you know, on, on one hand we may think, it's, you know, my nervous system is not finely tuned enough yet. It would burn me out. Just like Ram Gopal warned Yogananda, it would. Nonetheless, the image is there. And And just as Tom was saying, you kind of get it. You can kind of feel like what it's going to do, what it's going to be like. You have some, if not experiential, at least intuitive sense of, of this whole thing dissolving, just as he described. You know, just sort of like, like sugar crystals shaken in water. And he says every so often, you know, everything began to shimmer and dissolve. Isn't it just a beautiful image? You kind of want to kind of squish your eyes a little bit and just like have everything kind of shimmer and dissolve. And just sort of try to look at the world with those pictures like something that's so important to us and just just really try to look at it and recognize it's just all waves of light. Yogananda once said, Swamiji quotes him in The Path, he said, you know, looking out over it, a group of devotees, he said, oh, if you could only see yourselves as I see you, you would see that you're nothing but light, just beautiful light. Ramakrishna, who was always just going off into ecstasy. There's a little exchange recorded in the gospel where there was some festival in another village and they wanted, oh, Ramakrishna, we could, someone said, you know, I'll get a carriage and we'll go. And he said, oh, he said, I'll go there. And as soon as I see all those souls, it'll just put me in ecstasy and I won't see anything anyway. (laughs) such a sort of human way to say it. The sight of all those devotees will just be so uplifting to me that I'll just lose consciousness. So what's the point? We'll just stay here. (laughs) You're kind of like, that's a problem. (laughs) And that's why Master said to memorize samadhi. When I was in the monastery, we used to say it all together after every at the end of morning meditation we'd all recite samadhi together it was actually a very good way I must confess I don't quite know all the words anymore but for many years I could say it all the the way through and I can almost now but just because we want to constantly impress on our consciousness that this is really who we are and just really get into all of those um, past, present, no more for me you know just like just time just going away and Master also touches it with such sweetness, a tiny bubble of laughter. I have become the sea of mirth itself. And it just takes all the pretense out of it and all of the sort of grand majesty, which is also marvelously in that poem. But when it finally ends, it just ends on such a light note. Many of you know that our plans to finish this temple include um, in each, there's ten of these little categories, little sections between the rafters and in each one of them uh, there's going to be a two lines from the poem samadhi up on the wall. And we're just working with the mechanics of, of a fairly elaborate system of etched glass and illuminated etched glass, which is going to be quite, actually quite stunningly beautiful. But so what will happen is that all of you, and me too, will, for the rest of our lives, will sit here and we'll have these uh, concepts just up on the wall. You know, and it's a very, it's, we, we've often, we, we we want to create as many ways as possible to remind ourselves and to anyone who walks in here that something is happening in this space that's not happening in other places. And we had thought of putting words on the wall and then Swamiji suggested we use the poem Samadhi. And just to finish the thought, we'll put a little folder in the, on the back wall with the whole poem in a little plaque that just says, you know, Yogananda recommended that we, Memorize this and say it every day and then people can take the little thing. And But you'll, we'll just sit here and we'll see. By thirsty, by deeper, longer, thirsty, guru-given meditation comes this celestial samadhi. And so for the rest of our spiritual lives in this area, we'll be able to look up on the wall and just see that. You contemplate each one of those words. Deeper, longer, thirsty, but then it says guru-given meditation so at the end after all of that thought of self-effort then all of a sudden we realize but it's just the get- grace of the guru that the whole thing comes and the subtlety of words like that I was reading um, Whispers from Eternity the original editions not the 1980 something 1989 or actually the 8th edition that SRF puts out in 1981 they published what they call the first edition and they also published a horrible edited edition which we don't sell so don't worry about it but in the original editions Yogananda wrote this whole instructions to the reader about how to use the poems in Whispers from Eternity, it's just so beautiful and he's so colorful in his images and he said words are like a drunken mute person who cannot express to you what's made them intoxicated but can only sort of gesture a little bit (laughs) (laughs) isn't that a colorful image? He says, that's what words are like. He said, so the words of these prayer demands, which is what he calls the poems and whispers from eternity, which he said were given to him by God, he said, are intoxicated with divine bliss, but they can only hint at it. And so you have to really um, uh, meditate on them deeply. And if you meditate on those words deeply enough, they will reveal to you the intoxicating wine that's behind them. Isn't that just an exquisite image? And so, of course, that's why he wants us to memorize this poem, Samadhi, so that we repeat these words over and over again until the the true divinity behind them comes out. He says he wrote this from a state of cosmic consciousness. Swami in the Path says that Yogananda said he actually sat on the New York subway and wrote this poem. As Master said, he rode the subway from end to end and then he said, they never asked me for my ticket. And then he adds, in fact, they never saw me. <laughs> so you don't know what level of riding on the subway he was. <laughs> but he, that's, what he, that's how he describes it. And then he went into the state of consciousness and described it. Just really tried to tell us what it felt like. Amazing, isn't it? And, but he did it for very, very profound and important reasons. And uh, it's an important thing for us to respond to. He, um, and then you have this, this whole beautiful episode of him returning from his little away, you know, Yogananda has taken this little uh, jaunt into the Himalayas and then he just walks back and, you know, there's no long period in between of Yogananda having to swallow his youthful pride and come back to his guru and you just have this complete equanimity on the part of Sri Yukteswar just an incredible example Master, you must be angry with me. Sri Yukteswar says, why would I be angry? You know, anger comes from thwarted desire. I'm not using you for anything of my own. Just, what an extraordinary um, example of true friendship is, is what we see. I just want your best welfare. Now you're, that you're back, if you, there's no, you can't disappoint me. You can only really let yourself down. But if I had a reaction to your behavior, then I would be thinking of myself, not of you. Ooh, next time you're about to respond to something, just let that one run for a while. It's really, it, it just, we hardly know these masters really, well, they just come to show us, because we, we all want love, and we want to be loved, and we want to give love, and we talk about it all the time, and, and then we just are so pathetic compared to what really real love is. And then we don't understand why it doesn't work out for us, right? You know, we keep putting our hand on the hot stove and getting so mad because it burned again. And Swamiji says, I'm going to give you one more chance not to burn me. Damn, you did it again, you know? That's sort of what it is. We just constantly uh, pretend that we're loving when we're really just trying to serve ourselves and then we're surprised that it doesn't work out. So we have this just beautiful example. And then you have, it's such a touching, it's just so, I want to say human, but it's just so uh, vibrantly real. It's Sri Yukteswar, Yogananda goes and meditates and he's determined to meditate. He's still, he's probably not 20 years old by the time all this is happening. He's a young man. He goes to meditate, Yogananda calls him. He doesn't want to answer. You know that I meditating. I'm meditating, sir. Sri Yukteswar says, I know how you're meditating. Poor boy, he says. Poor boy. And Sri Yukteswar is, you know, a grown, mature, gray-haired man, and he has this lad. Come to me, he says, and then just touches him on the chest. It's such a joke in our community. Everybody's always like... (laughs) (laughs) Just like looking for someone. People will say, they'll kind of like stand in front of Swami. (laughs) Just in the hope something will happen. Teshwara touches him on the chest because it's in the heart, the heart, the center of the imperium, you know, it's this intuitive perception here, I don't understand, but that's how he describes it. Then all of a sudden, everything opens up. The breath goes out of his body. Yogananda describes the twin forces of breath and thought that just keep this thing going all the time, keep it vibrating. And only when breath and thought become absolutely still does all the vibration stop amazing thought, isn't it? So Yogananda teaches us the simplest meditation in the world. Watch the breath. Dissolve into the breath. Watch the breath until the breath ceases. Enjoy the pauses between the breath. And it's like everything. I mean, there's again, I'll come back to this theme of institutional religion and dogma and theology. I mean, there's this huge, people have these huge edifices that they call religion. You know, huge buildings and institutions and rules and systems and hundreds of years of building it up and, you know, clergy associations and laws and, you know, there's so and so, there's all these lawsuits within the churches because of this and because of that. It's all about stilling the breath, stilling the thought, and perceiving the divine. That is it. Zip everything else is just to support that. And if it doesn't support that, it has nothing to do with it. It's just worldly. I mean, there's some some other things that are true, but it all comes back to that. We just keep it as simple as we can possibly keep it. In our own hearts and minds, too. In the Bhag, in the Rubaya, Yogananda says, there's only one place God can be experienced. And he says, in the human nervous system. It's such a completely un un euphonic sort of way to say it in the human nervous system. And and we make this, you know, this, the body is the temple. And then sometimes people start worshiping the physical body as if that's what it actually means, you know, my body is my temple. And we make it beautiful and we worship its youth and we sort of are always thinking about it. It's not what it meant. Because you have a body, you could, in, in this consciousness, you can. You can absorb the whole of infinity into this physical body if it's purified sufficiently. It's not about it as an entity, it's it's a vehicle for something else. It's, it's, a, it's a, just an amazing prospect, isn't it? That's why human beings are the most advanced. Because only the human body has the capacity to have cosmic consciousness. So all the debates about whether the dolphins or the whales or any of the others really have it, they don't, according to the masters. Because they don't have a nervous system that can perceive infinity. They can perceive some things, but they they can't perceive infinity. Only the human being can do that. And that's why we have to take care of this body, because it's capable of doing that. Once uh, Happy Winningham, who had AIDS for so many years, was asking Swamiji, how long do I keep struggling to keep this body? Because she didn't care about losing it from that point of view. He said, well, as long as you can still meditate and do Kriya. He said, as long as there's a possibility of having divine experience through it, you should keep it. And then at the point when it becomes such a drawback that you can't really um, use it to have divine experience, then that's the time to let it go. You know? Disease overtook her, so she never really had the moment to sit up and decide. But such a simple way of saying it, isn't it? Keep going as long as you can have divine experience through it. And then Master just it's so completely a... Uh, was well, just so real-world, a cow could be seen coming down Rai Ghat Lane. And when it got to the gate, I saw it with my physical eyes, and then when it got on the other side, I saw it again with my Divine Sight. Some of you have been to Rai Ghat Lane, this little narrow, dusty street where Yod- uh, Sri Yukteswar's ashram is now. And it, it's still, it's just a narrow, dusty street. It's not a, it's not a street, it's just a lane, a dirt lane. And uh, you see the, the gate, I think the gate's been rebuilt, but you can, just sort of, you can just kind of see the cow coming up the road, and cows do occasionally come up the road. And he just shows how he just re- continues to relate to the whole of creation, but just seeing it so completely differently. I mean, this is the secret of the master's equanimity. They don't have to discipline themselves to be detached. It's like, how can you be attached to things that just keep dissolving and redissolving into light? So it's a good, it's a good technique also to use when you're beginning to be really upset with someone, just kind of look at them and watch them dissolve into light. (laughs) You know, then what would you, what is there to be upset about? Quite seriously. Or when you feel like you're lacking something, you want to grab it. Just imagine it all dissolving into light. It's a very practical teaching. It's not at all a far away teaching. And the more we, um, the more we solve our problems by going to the top of the mountain, the more that the closer we'll come to the top of the mountain, don't just don't mess around with all the little solutions in between. This is where you know psychology and spirituality just divide. It's not really about just getting your whole little scene in order. it's just looking at it and seeing light. You know it doesn't matter what your odd little details about it. this is the way you you solve your problems. It's just by lifting your consciousness up to the light and seeing it from that point of view. Don't think you can't practice it, you really can. When you're, you know, in traffic and you feel annoyed, just dissolve all the cars around you into little bubbles of light. Imagine that you're Yogananda having an experience of cosmic consciousness and it's all just dissolving. Well, at least make it more entertaining. <laughs> you know, what is there to get upset about? It's really just a beautiful story. Well, any other comments or thoughts? Or... Yes. Why did Yogananda Isn't that weird? The same thing, Gyanamata says the same thing to Yogananda. You know, please, when will I realize God? And Yogananda says, you already have. I cannot understand it. I can play with words. I have no idea what it's about. It must have something to do with just ceasing to exist. And I don't know. How. That's the only thing I can figure. I've tried to understand that one. I've even heard Swami talk about it, and I really can't say anything. Swami just sort of mumbles things like, well, you know, maybe when there is no sense of self anymore, there's no self to evaluate. You know, there's no, there's no ego anymore. So the ego, how would the ego know? But the fact that Gyanamata said exactly the same thing to Master, and Master replied in the same way, oh, isn't that funny, you already have realized, God. You would think that you would know. But, but I guess you don't. I, I guess so. That's why it's normal. I guess so. It's a very odd thing. I find it very odd too. When I saw it coming up in this chapter, I said, "Oh dear, there it is again." <laughs> Anybody have any better ideas, <laughs> Tom? Well, that's what Sri Yukteswar answers. Ha, 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 did you really expect it? But then Yogananda then describes it in terms of his consciousness. And the consciousness of freedom and the consciousness of joy and the consciousness of wisdom. You know, the the manifestations of spirit. And Yogananda had to admit that, well, in fact, that was the experience he was having and I guess that's it. But by no means would it be a letdown. So it's a very peculiar just a very peculiar exchange next time I see Swami I'll ask him again and see if he says anything I can remember yeah well I think if God is more than ever new bliss because there's the eight manifestations of spirit but ever new bliss is definitely one of them. So if you're experiencing ever new bliss, I mean, think about the phrase, ever new bliss. You know, every moment it's fresh. Ever new bliss. That's pretty impressive. And if you're in that state, then you're in a state of divine consciousness. Fun, huh? Okay, any other insoluble questions? All right. Thank you very much. We skip next week. And then on the, tw- the 28th, we do 22 and 26. Ooh, the signs of Kriya yoga and the heart of a stone image, visiting divine mother Dakineshwa.: I don't know.